Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. I'm curious, with the first kind of iteration and deployments of some of the stations, what did you see in terms of uptime? Because that's another problem uh, that I think folks are beginning to appreciate with conventional charging models is that a lot of the time, if you pull up to a fast charging station and there's three chargers, like on average, one of them is out of commission. So yeah, I'd be curious, you know, how successful were you in terms of kind of the station not breaking uh, throughout a lot of the different deployments? And yeah, I'll just speak to that. I think it's a very good point. And part of it starts with how, how people be incentivized to deploy these. So if you're incentivized to deploy a charger and that's where you make most of your money is actually in the deployment, you're not as incentivized to go through and, and maintain it. <laughs> and I think we're seeing that in a lot of cases where yeah. people may be making most of the money by the arbitrage between what it costs them to build it and all the subsidies and all they can in terms of going through and putting it uh, yeah. rather than ongoing. We're different that way. We actually, we bear the costs of uh, going through and, and, and building these and we right. make money from people using it. So we're very incentivized to have high uptime and, and have it be a great experience to go through. So that for us, we do, it doesn't give us the option to say, look, we just let the lead 40% of these not work. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> we have to. So we spend a lot of time going through. All right, John, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk all things battery swapping and the good work that you and the folks at Ample are doing to, uh, to make that a reality in the U.S., I think, you know, when folks, especially folks that are in the know on climate tech hear about what you're trying to do to build cars that can battery swap and build out battery swapping in the U.S., uh, a lot of them think, you know, haven't we tried this before? There was that company back in 2013, Better Place, which I'm certainly not comparing you all to. But it is an interesting case where there was an attempt at it in the past and it didn't quite pan out. So I'm interested to hear your perspective on how did you get excited about the concept and, and want to try to build a company to make it work in, in 2023 and beyond? It was about eight or nine years ago when my uh, co-founder, Harald, and I sat down. They actually both looked at buying electric cars mm. and <laughs> went through a process. They realized that I'd have to upgrade the electricity in the house to go through and do it. It was going to cost a while. But after that, you start looking at the full process of how do I charge your vehicle and you realize the limitations it has. So we started digging into it, and the first realization I think people come up to is, let me just get a really fast charger. Let me build a really fast charger to produce the problem. But when you think right. of creating a charger that can charge a car in five minutes, it's a really tough thing to do. And it's a tough thing to do cost-effectively and energy-efficiently. <laughs> it ends hmm. up losing a lot of energy as heat. It ends up costing a lot of money to go through and do it. So we just said, what works really well with gas is you stop and we physically move the gas into a car and drive away. And said, with the swapping or battery swapping, you do exactly the same thing. Battery swapping has been around for about 100 years. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> and incredible attempts. And if you go on uh, online, you can find these videos from the 1940s that show you taxi fleets that are all battery swappable. Hmm. What put an end to that was gas. <laughs> <laughs> and part of it was that gas worked really well. It worked across all different types of cars. It was very easy to use. And every attempt at battery swapping since has not solved those fundamental problems. Mm. So I, when you look at going now back from gas to, to batteries, it's happening not because batteries suddenly are much more efficient or work much better than gas, uh, yeah. but because of the, the issues that we have with climate problems. So if you want to have a large number of people move from, from gas to electric, you have to make it as, as fast convenient as, as gas. 
So we went back to battery swapping and said, can we solve those fundamental problems that didn't work before? And we felt three things that didn't work before that we had to solve. One is it has to work across different types of vehicles. You can't have one solution for one maker, another for another, it falls apart. The beauty about gas also can go across makers, across types of vehicles. How do you, how do you go through and do that? And that almost means that you need to have batteries that you can use across different vehicles, which right now doesn't, doesn't really work. And the last is you need to roll out the infrastructure very quickly and cost efficiently. So we put those as the three tenets and said, if you install those three problems, it works across different uh, types of vehicles that you can use the same batteries across cars and, and roll out the infrastructure, then, then we have something that could work. Yeah, got it. Well, no small set of challenges. Uh, <laughs> I imagine you all spent a considerable amount of time kind of in Ample's early formation, you know, tackling those ex- exact challenges. Talk us through kind of what was it like to unpack each of those technically and how much progress do you feel like you've made on all of those today? So I'd say the first few years was solving those problems. Uh, mm. We were we stayed in stealth mode because we wanted to, I think often you get companies that go through and announce things and then see things solve it. <laughs> and we wanted yeah. to do this. We said, let's see if we can actually solve them before we announce it. So we spent the first few years going through and, and solving each of those. Uh, how do we go through and, and work with the car companies? The key thing is not asking them to make many changes. Actually, not asking them to make any changes is, is the best. <laughs> car companies do something that's very difficult. They're producing cars in massive volumes that need to be reliable, safe, and do a lot of things. And if, every time you ask them to tweak it, it's very difficult. So that's the first problem that we went through and solved is, is how do we go through and solve that, uh, that problem for them? And we came up with a way to allow us to to basically interface with the car using the same electrical, mechanical, and, and software solutions that uh, you know that they have right now. Hmm. The same thing that we wanted to do was to go through and be able to use uh, basically make the car independent of battery chemistry, and that was a very tough technical problem to do. We basically use uh, I call them smart batteries, but use power electronics to go through and match the battery to the car very efficiently, and that was the second set of problems we went through and. We were able to, at that point, allow us to use the same battery in any vehicle. And it gives you nice additional things. For example, over time, you can use newer battery chemistries in a car to allow it to go further. So you no longer have to worry about technology obsolescence or if I buy it this year, what will come out next year? You get the benefit of that as well. Sure. Uh, And then the last was in terms of how do you roll it out uh, quickly and cost-effectively. For that, we realized the key part is not involving construction. As soon as you start digging into ground, it costs a lot and takes a lot of time. And yeah. so we put that as a requirement that we're not going to go and uh, do any construction for this, as well as give ourselves a lot of leeway where you don't need the ground to be perfectly flat or so you can work what you have. So that eliminated uh, a lot of the need for construction. And then finally, also the power. You want to work with power that's available because as soon as you ask for grid upgrades, you'll be waiting two to three years. So yeah. once we go up each of those solves, then we had a solution that worked. I think even starting at the end is an interesting one because when people think about battery swapping, as we discussed, one of the main kind of benefits that comes immediately to mind is the speed. But integrating more effectively with the grid and harmonizing the way that cars charge with when power is actually available is also a very attractive proposition in my mind. So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, you're probably, I have some ideas, but you're the expert at, at kind of explaining why battery swapping is more easily integrated with today's grid. Uh, and I think that'd be a really valuable point to, to outline for the listeners. When you think about charging, the one issue you have at charging is your car is connected to the charger while it's charging. <laughs> uh, 
And that causes a lot of interesting uh, issues. One is you don't want to keep your car there for a long time. So you usually end up with this peak power. It's, mm-hmm. uh, you're not taking energy from the grid. Your car comes, plugs in. You have a massive uh, surge and then you charge your car and it goes away. From right. a grid perspective, the, the grids aren't built to do that. The grids are really built to transport a tremendous amount of energy very predictably to, to a specific spot. So you take a grid that's built that way, and then you, you add to this these surges that show up on the grid at different times, in addition at unpredictable locations and unpredictable time. <laughs> and that is really hard for the grid to do. Uh, the grid is not set up to, to go through that. So what you can do with batteries uh, swapping, actually, if I take a step back, the way people try to address that with chargers is you put batteries in to act as a buffer. Right, so charge the charger itself, yeah, or around the charger. Exactly. And with battery swapping, what works really well is the batteries are built into the delivery mechanism. You have batteries at the swapping stations that give you a natural buffer. So you're charging those batteries and then the vehicle comes, you deliver those batteries very quickly to the car. So right. you separate charging the batteries from delivering it. So you can charge it slowly and there's a lot of advantage to charging batteries slower. It's better for the grid. It also mm-hmm. increases the longevity of the batteries. So you can charge them under controlled conditions. But when right. the car comes, you deliver it really quickly. So separating those two solves that problem in, in a very big way. I mean, I've seen some projections around even in the next few years as penetration of EVs continues to increase. It's like we could quickly get to a point where EV charging requires something like a few percentage points growth in the amount of available energy on grids in the US. And, and perhaps to some people, that doesn't sound like a lot. But to me, it sounds like a tremendous amount, like even if you're just increasing energy ma- demands by 2 or 3%. That's a considerable uptick. And yeah, any opportunity to allow for slower charging or to bifurcate when charging happens into a battery and when that battery is then actually used in a car is a pretty, pretty significant opportunity. Yeah. And especially because the way we deal with surges in the grid often is with bigger plants and a lot of those are not using mm-hmm. renewable energy. The other thing you have is often when you're getting renewable energy, it's not when people are charging the cars. So you have to figure out how do you bridge that gap. Right. If you want to use renewable energy, again, buffering comes in and battery swapping works very nicely with it. Whenever renewable energy is available, you can go through and take it and then mm-hmm. deliver that to a car. So you increase. The way you get electric cars to be green is by running them for many years on renewable energy. And by using battery swapping, you increase the amount of renewable energy you can use to, to drive it. So the entire solution becomes uh, greener. So it works well with renewable energy. It works well in terms of decreasing the peaks, spreading it out and making it very predictable. So you can get a lot more from the current grid. It also decreases things like heat, heat loss. If you're using a, a fast charger, often you have liquid cool fast chargers because you're throwing out energy as heat. You take away, you go through and, and save all of that. The other thing is you also take away this impact where people tend to what we call hoard batteries. So when you buy a car, you buy a car with a big battery just in case there's at one time in the year you might need it. Mm. Uh, with battery swapping, you can choose how much battery you put in the car. So normally you can put less in the car, have your car be more efficient. But when you go on long drive, put all of it in. So you end up decreasing heat loss in the charges. You end up decreasing inefficiency due to carrying heavy batteries. And then you get the most out of current grid. So all that has a multiplying effect when you put all that together. You, our current grid can go much further with what it has before need to operate. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, especially in terms of like using battery capacity a lot more efficiently. I hadn't thought about that in a while. But yeah, if you buy a car with a 400 mile range, you might never use that over the lifespan of the car. And that's taking up a lot of valuable battery materials to build that battery. Whereas if if you can get folks to 
or if you can build kind of a, a tech stack or a vehicle that corresponds to the average trip, which is probably only 10 or 20 miles uh, most of the time, that makes a lot more sense. You also have the issue that the batteries tend to degrade over time, not just by usage. So even if you don't drive your car, if you just park it, after a certain number of years, that battery is degraded. So when you buy a very big battery and you're using a small part, you're effectively paying for this big battery that you're not using. It's going to go bad on you. Mm-hmm. So if you can right size it, it ends up being, from a cost perspective, a lot more efficient. You're only paying for what you're using. And you don't also have the issue where you're carrying around a large battery and, and losing energy doing that. To go back to the first technical challenge, I'm, I'm very curious what some of the conversations with automakers have looked like as you've begun to build partnerships. You all recently announced that, that Fisker is going to use your technology in some of their EVs that will hit the market next year, which is very exciting. Congratulations. But I'm curious like, how those conversations developed and what did it eventually take to get someone like Fisker to say, yes, we're going to use this and we trust that Ample is going to deploy enough infrastructure to also make it useful for the customers that are going to buy these cars. I think what has really helped is two things. One is as the OEMs goes around deploy vehicles, they spend a lot of time with their customers to understand what their customer challenges are. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where uh, that's they get the feedback that opens the door for us to have conversations with them. Mm-hmm. I mean, the OEMs are not in the business of, of solving the infrastructure problem. If you look at it with gas, there are other companies going through and doing that. They're in the business of creating great cars. And I think for them, finding a way to do, but on the other hand, for the customers, it's not very useful unless you bring both together. You have to bring the cars together with the infrastructure. And I think that's where we, we have the opportunity to work with OEMs is partnering with them allows us to meet customer needs by giving them both a vehicle and infrastructure that solves them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that's one is as they get the feedback. The second has been going with customers to OEMs. So often a customer will come to us and once they've deployed maybe 100 vehicles or so, they understand the challenges. Uh, the challenges when you deploy, you know, first five are very different from once you get uh, to a larger number. And it's a, it's a lot more complicated than than the, the fleet start. They have to worry about if you're going to a depot, how do you upgrade the power? How long does it take? When you dig up the entire depot to put in charges, what's the cost? It'll be pretty expensive. How long can you use the vehicles? A lot of them want to keep it for 10 plus years. Right. What happens to residual value? So they look at all that on top of the logistical complexity of how do you charge the vehicles. So when we go through and speak with the fleets, they understand how swapping solves all those problems for them. And yeah. so a lot of them come to us and say, look, we, we really like this vehicle from this OEM. Let's go and speak mm-hmm. to them together. And so yeah. we, we have the two, sometimes it's the OEM seeing the need, sometimes it's the, the fleet saying, uh, we really like this OEM. We're happy to go and speak to together with them. And it also, yeah, it tracks for me that fleets have been a very kind of sensible early focus because those are the types of users that a use the car a lot and potentially would need to do a lot of charging for them it can often be more important than the consumer that the quote-unquote charging or how they get a new fully charged battery into the vehicle is fast be curious like what are the types of fleets that that you're working with like who have those early customers been yeah what's their experience been like so far because i know that some of them are already using your technology we went after fleets for many of the reasons you said for them, the problem is acute very quickly. You're dealing with large number of vehicles and you, you go through. And often, especially in the US, when you look at electric vehicles, many of them, it's a second car. They have a gas car and an electric vehicle, so directions are different. When you deal with a large fleet of vehicles, very quickly you have to do solve these problems. And, and so for us, they were the perfect uh, customers. And they also have a large number of vehicles where if you want to have a large impact on climate, if somebody can move a few thousand cars 
to electric very quickly, you have a larger impact. They also tend to drive more. So just from a mileage perspective, it helps. So when we were looking at, uh, as we start off with ride sharing and work with Uber was, I think, very, very instructive for us. These drivers drive a lot. And if you want them to go through and charge, they could be spending 10 to 12 hours a week charging. Right. So that, that time is going to either you make less money or they're going to take away a lot of their free time to right. go through. And so we wanted to start off with that use case to go through and, and see how it works. And do two things we we'll, we wanted to show. One is at a high level, you can make as much money driving an electric vehicle as you can driving a gas vehicle. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, when you look at companies like Uber, they actually do also give you additional bonuses for driving electric vehicles. So you actually can make money. See, if the terms were the same, they'd make the same amount of money, but they actually have better terms from Uber if they, they go green, and, and so they nice. tend to be yeah. more money. On the other side, on a cost perspective, we charge them less than gas. So at the end, you want to see, can you make more money and it costs you less, and overall, it's much more profitable for the, for the driver. Mm-hmm. And so we were able to go through and, and show both of those. From a driver's perspective, we realized it was an interesting one where the locations of the stations, they, after a while, you see very quickly where they wanted to be. And so we could work very quickly to make sure we have the locations that make sense for them. And then work on things like a mobile app. They want to be able to see where the stations are, when they close the stations, what's happening in a swap. So we worked with them very closely to get that feedback and give them uh, give them the tools that they need to get the most out of the experience. Uh, what was interesting, we saw that is often people would come with passengers to a swapping station. It's a quick swap. <laughs> Uh, you wouldn't do that with a charging station. You never want to spend 45 minutes. <laughs> yeah. with your, but for them, it was like gas that if you haven't needed it, you can go through. So it, it worked a lot. Uh, we're expanding now beyond ride sharing. We'll go into uh, last mile delivery, which is a, a very good use case. It's one way you want to choose the ability to choose how much your battery you put in the vehicle based on the route is important. You make the car more efficient, but you can also carry more payload. Mm. So that we'll, want, we'll be doing car sharing, car sharing. Often what ends up happening is if you have gas cars, you incentivize your customers to go through and fill it up before they park it. Uh, with electric, it doesn't work, and you need a lot of people to go in and keep on charging the cars. Right. With this, you, you can either incentivize the customers or it's very quick to go through. So we'll, yeah. again, we'll also look at corporate fleets. So all those cases are only a pawn for us. And that ties in well to another question I was going to ask, which is once you've gotten more of a foothold with these different types of fleets and other specific or a little bit more niche kind of use cases, is from a kind of total addressable market perspective, would you like to get to a future where there's also, you know, everyday folks like me who consider buying a Fisker that has your technology integrated? Because I guess the interesting question for me at that point becomes, you could theoretically envision a future where there's two completely parallel sets of infrastructure for different types of EVs. You have your kind of conventional fast charging infrastructure that's already taking off across the US, of course, need to build a lot more of it. Um, and then you'd have battery swapping stations. And, and that'd be an interesting dynamic because... You know, for the past however many years, 50 years, it's it's one very specific type of, of station that services pretty much every vehicle, uh, the gas station. And even if you have a diesel car versus a car that runs on, on more conventional gas, the pump ultimately still looks the same. But is that a future that you think is possible where there's these two sets of parallel infrastructure or hard to say at this point? There are, I think, use cases where charging makes sense. I do think you'll probably go and see, continue to see both types of infrastructure. We definitely think there are a lot of people, consumers, who uh, would use battery swapping. If it's your only vehicle and you don't have charging at home, then I think there's a good chance that you want to go through and, and swap it uh, rather than going to charge it. 
but you also get additional benefits which help using uh, Ample's version of it is even if you have a fixed battery, the ability to upgrade your technology, you, know, you keep your graph right. of years, you could have a car that has 40% more range. I think there are additional benefits that make it that make it attractive. You don't also want to, if you want to keep your car for 12, 13 years, the ability to swap it is good. You don't pay up front for the battery, you just pay a battery subscription. So I think mm-hmm. there are other additional benefits that could make it very attractive for people to go through uh, swap. But I think that it's tough unless you do charging once in a while and you're willing to spend more time. If you do it every time and you need to spend 30, 40 minutes doing it, it gets yeah. been a, a tough to, to persuade people to do that. And we are starting to see, especially in China with Neo, where you know they're pretty advanced in terms of popularizing battery swapping. I think I was reading their annual report for 2022, and I think they've done something like 20 million cumulative swaps. So it's certainly starting to happen in other places where, you know, obviously there's fast charging in China too, but you have uh, NEO building a decent amount of swapping stations. I'd be curious when you look at NEO, what are some of the things that you've learned from their model that have kind of informed how you all are moving forward? And I'm sure there's also a number of things that you all are doing differently from them. So it'd be interesting to hear about that. And China thinks a very good example to look at. They have the largest number of, uh, they definitely have the largest number of electric vehicles, but they also have the largest number of uh, fast chargers in the world. So I think they have 50-something percentage of the electric vehicles, but they have 80% plus of the fast chargers. Wow, so the yeah. Fast chargers per car is the highest out there. And in spite of that, now they've gone through and put a lot of policies in place to go through and incentivize swapping. Mm-hmm. So you actually get a higher subsidy if your vehicle is swappable than if it's not. Interesting, uh, yeah. And they also put together their standard for swapping stations, uh, I think about a year ago. So they're doing a lot to go through and, and make sure it happens. Uh, part of the reason for them is they realize that many people buying electric vehicles in China, that is their only vehicle. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and so you, you, it's very different from the US where it may not be. Uh, so I think they are very focused on saying, we don't put together a solution that requires everybody to spend a lot of time charging. <laughs> it would kill productivity very quickly. So uh, given that that's a focus, people, this is the only car people have, they want to make sure it's fast and efficient and so going through and giving you solutions. So Neo is, is doing a good job. They have uh, cars, but you also have multiple other companies out there that are going through and, and, and providing uh, swapping solutions. And you also have companies that are doing specific, like Alton, that go through and provide uh, swapping solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that there's a lot. From us, when we looked at that solution, uh, the solution that worked in China, we felt would be difficult to replicate in other countries where many OEMs have solutions specific for that uh, OEM. Sure. Uh, yeah. I think uh, if you look at other countries, you need to find a solution that works across multiple OEMs so you get leverage from it. Mm. Uh, so, you know, we, we look at it and we really like the solution. We find out the, the customers will like it. I think when I was reading about them as well, a lot of them prefer the subscription model for the battery as opposed to buying it up front. So right. you look at you know, there's a lot a lot to be learned in terms of what the customers like. Uh, and then what we want to do differently is we just want to make sure it's not a, a solution for one OEM. Mm-hmm. We yeah. work across it, and the other thing we learned also looking is uh, in China a lot of it works on standardization of the battery, and we said that's going to be hard to do outside China. Mm. It's, it would take a lot of effort to get even one or two OEMs to standardize on a battery. So we said for us that would be a really uh, a tough sell. Let's talk about that a little more. What are some of the ways in which you've made your solution more kind of amenable and adaptable to different? OEMs. I know that one component of it is kind of breaking the battery pack into smaller modular battery packs, but I'm sure there's other components to that conversation too. 
the modularization of the battery pack is, I think, where it starts. And, mm. and by saying that the ability to go through and rearrange them and fit into the car rather than have the car fit to a battery was a critical mm. one. And there's a lot of additional things that go through. How do you work with that from a, a software perspective? They all have different CAN protocols. Or how do you work from an electrical perspective? They have different inverters with different electrical characteristics. And so we had to go through and solve that. But it did start with the idea of going to and modularize it. Also, the ability to fit into different size vehicles means you need to be able to very easily add more modules or a few modules and still get it to work. And so we, we solved all that. All of them now, we have a full range of nominal voltages they want to work at. We're talking about people doing 800-volt batteries, 400-volt batteries. And so we had to work through all those and see how do you how do you solve all those issues so that you can actually go through and, and get this to work. And then you also have different ways people build the batteries. So d- depending on how, how they go through, you need to find a solution that works across uh, all those different types. So mm. that's why the, I think the first few years for us was a deep dive into each of these uh, to solve it before. The swapping station, people think about swapping, they think about the swapping station. Before you can even get to the swapping station, <laughs> you need to figure out the the vehicle. So the first few right. years was spent a lot of it in terms of solving the vehicle. And then the second part was the swapping station. And I think the swapping station, the hard part on the swapping station was it needs to work across different sizes of vehicles. You could have a small city car, you could have a delivery truck coming in. How do you think yeah. about that full range? Um, not only is it different size batteries, different locations, different wheelbases, different widths. There's a lot of different things that you need to be able to go through and automatically adjust for. We want it to be a fully autonomous swapping station, so not have a, an attendant there. And that gives you a second set of how do you make it safe? How do you get to recognize the vehicles and go through? And working across different weather conditions, not only for the swapping station, but the, the vehicles will come in, in, in different, uh, you know, they might have ice on it, mud on it, and, and working through all those. So we solved first uh, the problems on the vehicle, then the second is on on swapping station, and then finally building all of that without doing any construction. Yeah. <laughs> that gives it enough time <laughs> to keep busy for the first few years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a massive amount of work over the course of, of six or seven years. But I'm glad that you kind of alluded to that transition. Of We've talked a lot about the vehicle and the batteries. And then, of course, there's also the battery swapping station component. So you've had kind of the version one of the some of the station's already deployed and out in the world making swaps. Uh, and you recently unveiled kind of a second generation that makes some improvements on the first one. I'd be curious to hear you talk about what some of the learnings from deploying the first stations were, and then you know how that informed the way that you kind of thought about redesigning it and building the second generation of the station. So we, we took a lot of the feedback that we received from our customers going through and doing the first station to, to help inform what we can do with the second. And there's a few key things that they wanted. One, I think, from a user experience, I mentioned briefly that they they wanted to get the mobile app, developing a mobile app that gave them a lot of this data, had control about when you start to swap, what's happening to swap uh, was important, and, and so we did that. Uh, the thing in terms of the experience at the station, especially when you deal with fleets, is having a drive-through station helps a lot. If you're looking around the world, almost all the stations are uh, ones that you back out of. Uh, mm-hmm. And so going through technically and solving it so that you drive in, get a swap, and, and drive out. Uh, that was the front point. side, yeah. And then we dropped it to the swap time. We got it down from 10 minutes to 5 minutes. Which again, saves you time. We deal with fleets. That helps a lot. Um, yeah. But especially when you deal with fleet customers, they want to be able to use that 5 minutes, even though it's for just 5 minutes, to do other things, be it whether you load a delivery truck or using it to do inspections or cleaning the vehicle. So we changed it as well so that the driver can go in and out during the swap. You don't have to decide ahead of time. 
Uh, but you can also use that to load the vehicles or, or do other things. So the ability to combine it allows you to use that five minutes very productively and, and get the vehicle uh, ready to go. Uh, and from a deployment perspective, we wanted to be able to set it up so that we could deploy these stations in three days. So mm-hmm. if you give us a couple of parking spaces, give us three days, we are up and running. So it, yeah, it comes in three different pieces that are pre-tested and we can go connect them and, and get it deployed very quickly. There are you know, other uh, things in terms of the specific deployment. <clears throat> it does go all the way to a class three truck. So you have the full range of vehicles that you can go through. And we also do have a now a display built into it. So the driver can use a display to help you know what's happening, help them in, in terms of parking the vehicle and, and uh, as well. Yeah. And so having having seen the, the swapping station in person, it's definitely very sophisticated. It's a little futuristic in the sense, as, uh, as you said, there's it's fully autonomous, car drives up onto it, platform raises, robotic arm comes underneath, takes out the plate on which the batteries sit, kind of pulls it back into the station, and then brings it back when it has fully loaded batteries swapped out into it. I'm curious, with the first kind of iteration and deployments of some of the stations, what did you see in terms of uptime? Because that's another problem uh, that I think folks are beginning to appreciate with conventional charging models is that a lot of the time, if you pull up to a fast charging station and there's three chargers, like on average, one of them is out of commission. So yeah, I'd be curious, you know, how successful were you in terms of kind of the station not breaking uh, throughout a lot of the different deployments? And yeah, I'll just speak to that. I think that's a very good point. And part of it kind of starts with how, how are people being incentivized to deploy these? So if you're incentivized to deploy a charger, and that's where you make most of your money is actually in the deployment you're not as incentivized to go through and, and maintain it. <laughs> and I think that we're seeing that in a lot of cases where yeah. people may be making most of the money by the arbitrage between what it costs them to build it and all the subsidies and all they can in terms of going through and putting it uh, yeah. rather than ongoing. We're different that way. We actually, we bear the costs of uh, going through and, and, and building these and we right. make money from people using it. So we're very incentivized to have high uptime and, and have it be a great experience to go through. So that for us, we do, it doesn't give us the option to say, look, we just let 30-40% of these not work. <laughs> yeah, <it's, laughs> we have to. So we spend a lot of time going through. But it also drives to how you build the, the software behind it. So mm-hmm. we, if there's an issue, we get alerted very quickly and we'll go through and fix it so we can get it back into, into circulation really, really fast. But when yeah. you build a new station, we also build a complete redundancy in there. So for example, you have one robot uh, fail in there and there's a second robot. You can actually push that first robot out of the way and continue operating. So it may take you another minute to go through and do the swap, but you better complete it. We'll get the alerts and go through and do any necessary repairs. Mm-hmm. Got it. Also, yeah. uh, we drove in terms of what is the necessary maintenance schedule? How do you go through and prevent those uh, from failing? So we spend a lot of time figuring out how do you have very high uptime, and that's for us it's critical in terms of the customer experience as well. In terms of that's how that's how we make the money. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that in terms of uh, aligning the incentives to actually ensure the uptime, but but that's definitely pretty compelling. And I'm curious, you know, how many V1 stations had you deployed globally? And then, you know, over the next kind of one to two years, what's the roadmap for deployment of the second generation of stations? What's the what's the footprint going to look like a year from now? So we, we've deployed, we have 12 in the Bay Area, and we started deploying them in uh, in Spain as well. Mm. So for us, what do you just work with the fleets, work with the fleet to find out what their uh, what the footprint is, how many vehicles, and we partner them to go through and deploy it. We will expand within within the US and within Europe as we go through and grow it. And we look inside to look at other countries as well. Uh, as we go through and find alignment where you have governments that are 
serious about electrification. They're providing programs so that uh, you have customers that can go and, and purchase them. We want to be able to, to work with those uh, governments to go through and, and deploy it. So we'll continue expanding with our current footprint, uh, but we will also we'll see us moving to new geographies as well and, and deploying these. And in terms of the manufacturing capacity, you know, what does it take to build one of the stations and how quickly are you ramping up to be able to if all goes well? And a lot of these stations will get deployed in the next few years. <laughs> yeah, so the, luckily the, the stations are not the bottleneck because you know, a station can go through and actually cover a large number of vehicles. Mm-hmm. Initially, what we had to go through and solve was actually producing batteries. And mm-hmm. so we, we actually build these fully automated plants that gives us very high throughput in producing the batteries. Mm-hmm. Once we increase the batteries, we need to go to produce stations. But, you know, for us right now, we can go through and, and produce them pretty quickly and you don't need as many to get to cover a large fleet. Yeah, that's another benefit. Uh, and I'm curious, like kind of lo- thinking longer term, how do you see opportunities around, there's a lot of discussion around the need to, you know, obviously build a lot more energy storage to fully valorize all the renew- renewable energy that's being built. It seems like there might be an interesting opportunity given that you're going to have potentially this big fleet of batteries where you have a lot more control over when they're charged and when they're being used. What's kind of like the the energy storage opportunity there too? Is that something that you all are thinking about using that as, as grid backup too if the incentives are attractive? It's a very natural energy storage. And it, from to, while it's still being used in the first life as using the batteries in the cars, we can use it to provide grid services directly uh, from the station. You read a lot of vehicle to grid. Vehicle to grid is hard to do. Mm. Uh, Swapping station to grid is very natural. Mm. So for us, we're looking at uh, providing things like uh, demand response, other grid services, uh, places where you might have earthquakes, you use this as backup for a city as well. Mm -hmm. So for us, the grid services, uh, providing the grid functionality, aligning it with renewable sources, when possible, providing energy back to grid are all very important to us. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. If If you want to make a vehicle capable of doing vehicle to grid, then there's a lot of technology that you need to put in the car itself. But if you're doing it from a station, then you only have to do it once and that might be able to service many vehicles. So Exactly. Yeah. And and if you're in a car, you need the car to be plugged in. You need to be plugged into a bi-directional charger and you need people who are comfortable using the car for for that. So it makes it more difficult. One thing that I would just say related to that is often people think about battery swapping is that or you need twice the number of batteries. So there are actually two things with that that are interesting. Firstly, is that you actually don't need that much uh, more battery. It could be 10% more batteries that you need. But in reality, because you solve the problem of people hoarding battery, you don't have all these people buying a lot of battery that they don't need. So right. over on the system, you actually end up with fewer. You could end up with 10% or more less battery mm-hmm. because people are actually now using the battery that they need as opposed to huge batteries that they don't. Yeah, you don't have as much unused battery capacity sitting in American garages. <laughs> Zooming out a little bit, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening, even just around like how bigger infrastructure gets built and permitting and stuff like that. I know that the Apple station is designed specifically to avoid some of the challenges around deploying larger infrastructure. But I'd just be curious what you all as a company are watching most closely, perhaps on the regulatory front, and, and what's the biggest tailwind? The first I think what has helped us a lot is one is we spend time in with a lot of the different uh, regulators and we're seeing that in all of uh, the new programs they're putting in place, including battery swapping. So that for us was a, a, a huge benefit. Mm-hmm. And and it wasn't 
initially they just didn't uh, do we do a thing about it they were thinking about charging so to support charging we just had to work with them to make sure it was technology enough so they can then they saw the benefits and and so i think that is as really gone through and helped us uh the same is they they're going through and they're thinking more in terms of in the end it's not just building infrastructure it's delivering energy that matters if you build infrastructure it's not used then start achieving their purpose and we're seeing them start to move that and say let's incentivize it based on how much your infrastructure is actually used and i think yeah. that for us is a huge huge benefit there also some the things where you see people wanting to incentivize uh, batteries and all made locally and the ability for us to work with a car manufacturer to allow them to use local batteries very quickly is is a huge benefit we can without any work from the car manufacturer we can switch it to a different cell in different regions and that allows them to go and meet the local regulations and, and avail themselves of different subsidies and then i think later on as we go through when you look at your delivering uh, the energy uh, depending on how green it is you get different uh, uh, subsidies so i think all of those are going to to go through and, and help a lot yeah, that's a really interesting point. I think it's going to be a big bottleneck for a lot of uh, electric vehicle manufacturers around what you mentioned. Uh, there's a lot of the subsidies and incentives are now tied to things being at least a certain percentage uh, being produced domestically. So the fact that you all are making the batteries that would be swapped into the cars domestically, that's a big, big benefit. And it allows us also, because we've built these micro factories, it's, it's very easy for them to set them up within the country and, and to go through and, and produce the batteries there. Uh, so we do with the micro factories allow us from a local operation perspective to go through and meet those and we have ability to also use local cells so the combination of that even though when we started it wasn't what we had in mind uh, but it allows us to meet a very important need for for the local government to saying how do we go through and incentivize batteries made locally yeah got it and one more perhaps challenging question and then we can get a bit more aspirational if you look ahead five or seven years or to 2030 kind of if we try to do the pre-mortem exercise to say, if this doesn't work out for some reason or doesn't work out to the level or the degree that, that you would want it to, what would you predict would be the factor that was was most limiting or most challenging to overcome? Well, I can say if if it didn't, it might be that we decided to go back to gas. <laughs> <laughs> I you know, feel, you know, but it does take a certain amount of commitment from a lot of different parties to get this uh, to get it to move. It's very easy to say the status quo. And so if you go through and we're 2030 and for a reason we decided that this is too much work, we just have to stick with what we have. <laughs> you know, that that would that would slow our plans pretty quickly. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think I think we've gone beyond that, but whenever you're trying to get people to move from one infrastructure to another, um it, it does take a lot of will and commitment over right. the amount of period and i think we have it but if i were you know if it doesn't i'd probably say that's the number one reason it probably wouldn't work yeah yeah i mean building infrastructure is hard especially in the u.s and uh there's a decent amount of unknown unknowns that come along with it over the course of, of the development so there's a lot of flexibility required which you all have already been navigating for the past six seven years but i'm sure that'll continue to be required exactly <laughs> right exactly right and then the flip side of the question, and it's kind of a two-part question. For one, I'm curious what the top-line KPR, KPIs are and, and how you measure success, whether that's in terms of number of cumulative swaps or stations deployed or, or customer service. But then, yeah, also, like if, if you woke up in 2030, what are some of kind of the numbers that you would have liked to hit by then in terms of those, those KPIs? So for us, you know, we, we go through swaps and all is important, uh, number of stations, 
I was saying number station. And then actually it comes down to how much energy you're delivering. Mm. more energy you're delivering, the better we are doing. And I think yeah. about, I had to summarize it into one is, you know, how much energy have you actually gone through and delivered? The, if I were to sort of peel that back a little bit, part of where it uh, it gets driven from is is also how many car makers are we working with? How many cars are we getting this in? And so when you think about a, a near term is, and the focus of this year is, we've been working with a lot of OEMs and we'll be getting those announcements out. These are, those are very important partnerships. That sort of feeds the full final. Uh, we then start getting cars out that are swappable, and mm. we can go through and and deliver the energy. You know, once we build OEMs, the second part of that will be uh, talking about more of the fleets that we're working with, and then talk about the energy we're delivering. But I'd say that's sort of the the pyramid out there in terms of meeting the key KPIs, delivering as much uh, energy that we can, and we want it to be uh, we want it to be a, a renewable energy coming at the back end. So we'll try and deliver as much of it, and then we'll you'll spend a lot of time optimizing to say how much of it can come from renewable sources. Right. Yeah, that'll be an interesting kind of metric to decompose over time is, is alongside the question of how much energy is being delivered, like how much more of it is green as a result of it being delivered in this fashion. I guess one more question on on the cars itself and then we can, or on the technology itself, and then we can zoom out a little bit more. Do you think that battery swapping is naturally going to be a better fit with as more cars become autonomous? Because uh, in my mind, given that it's an autonomous swapping station, that's potentially a more natural fit as more vehicles progress towards being at least somewhat or fully autonomous. It is a very good fit with autonomous for two different reasons. One is autonomous vehicles, autonomous swapping works really yeah. well. But a big push for autonomous is to increase the utilization of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. And it kind of, it goes against it to say we'll build a very high utilization vehicle and then have it spend a lot of time charging. Mm. You just spend a lot of time making it uh, high utilization and, and then decrease it significantly. So I think from right. that aspect of it, it works really well. Let's say mm-hmm. uh, you have a high utilization vehicle that you can continue to use high utilization and you don't have charging slow it down, so to speak. Uh, so I think from both those, the, the autonomous ability to work together and have both of them communicate and get it done works well and getting it in and out as fast as you can is, is really important. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to say exactly when or, or how long it will take for for more of the vehicle fleet to be autonomous, but I have had trends take Uber rides in San Francisco that there was no driver in, so it is it is slowly happening. The thing slowly, I mean, I, I think we will, as you start seeing you know newer cities or cities expand, it is much easier when you have all autonomous vehicles. Yeah, <laughs> so I, I think that I think we'll start seeing small pockets where you'll see a, a large number of autonomous vehicles and have those expand over time. It's only long before people can take islands and and get them completely autonomous very quickly and so i think we will go through and and see that switch and when you take a ride in one it is incredible it's yeah that it's <laughs> you go through and, and moving autonomously around uh, but also you know what i raised is that from a safety perspective we do have a large number of car fatalities in in, in the country and getting that down is important so for me i hope we get there quickly if we can have a a huge impact on that it, it'd be definitely worthwhile. Yeah, yeah. I spend so much time thinking about different climate technologies, and and sometimes it, it, yeah. At the end of this conversation, now I'm reminded of how futuristic some of it does feel, but it is cool that it's all, all happening in the present tense. Yeah, fully autonomous swapping stations, and they're they're going out on roads. <laughs> it all sounds theoretical until you get into a car and it's being driven on yeah. its own. And you don't. Is it often you're in a, car, a plane that's flying on its own? Yeah. Uh, so you 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 take that for uh, granted. You probably don't realize it, but. 
as soon as you get in a car and you don't have a driver there, it completely, you realize, wait, this is fully autonomous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in that same vein, kind of zooming all the way out, you know, I'm curious, I always like to ask folks, if you weren't working on Ample or even just, you know, as you look out and see other other climate tech companies that you might have, you know, other people that you know that work at, what are some of the other things out in the world that you find particularly compelling or solutions that you're excited about? Well, the same thing about the time we're at is that you really can dream of anything and go through and work on it and, and you can have, I'd say, disproportionate impact mm. uh, to, to go through. So I think right now, and I, and I speak a lot with uh, people who are graduating and uh, tell them, dream big because this is a unique time we can go through and have uh, and have the impact. You can also ha- do a lot with not that much money. The amount of leverage you get on a small amount of money is tremendous. So I, I, I think across in the, I think climate tech in terms of we need to have more, we need to do more from different aspects with its carbon capture, how do we go through and uh, think about uh, green hydrogen. I, I think there are multiple aspects of, of climate tech that are important and we need to do uh, more there. I also think that in other arenas outside of climate tech, in health there's a tremendous amount that's happening. And we hear a lot about AI, but AI is one component of a full ecosystem out there that's important. You know, right. full of, you know, we take cloud computing for granted, right. uh, which which actually was very powerful. And this full edge computing is also very powerful. Mm. You know, so I, I think there are different aspects in terms of, of how do you go through and, and use the power we have either in the cloud or on specific devices that are so powerful right now. Both of those allow you to do you know very interesting. If you're doing an autonomous vehicle, you need to have very powerful edge computers. <laughs> you're not going to send everything back in. But at the same time, if you're on AI, you need to have very powerful cloud data to right. be able to go through and, and drive it. I also think it's powerful that the software, uh, when you go back, when people wrote a lot of software, you need to know a lot to be able to build complex software. And right now, they've, the systems are getting much better. You can, you can develop incredible software even if you can't write a line of code yourself. Mm. And that gives you tremendous leverage across your organization because you can take a lot of different people, get them to work to build incredible stuff without each one of them being burdened down with all the details of different things. Right. So I think about as we watch uh, how we build the stations, it takes a lot of people working together. The tools are incredible. They're getting better all the time. Productivity is, is shooting up. Uh, we yeah. still have a, a relatively small company, but if you can think about that small company producing all of what we did, it would be impossible without all of these sort of technologies coming together. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fantastic perspective. It's it's always nice when I leave a conversation a bit more optimistic than when I entered it. So, <laughs> thank you for that, John. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> In closing, I'd love to you know it's it's always good for listeners, kind of a call to action. If if folks are interested in Ample or want to read more about it or want to watch videos of the the swapping station, you know, where are the right places for people to look to keep up with the good work that you're doing? So we a lot of it is on our site, and we're lucky to have Apple.com. <laughs> So it's a, it's a very simple uh, URL in terms of going there. Uh, but also if you if you just look up Ample Battery Swapping online, you get a lot of information on it. Uh, we currently focus on fleets, but we'll be going to consumers as well. So major people are aware of it and getting the, the feedback is very important to us. Yeah, excellent. I'm excited to, uh, living in New York, I don't need a car too badly, but you know, the next time, and well, actually that's a, that's a good benefit. When I look to buy my next vehicle, it'll probably be a few years and hopefully by then, I'll be able to uh, consider a, a Fisker with ample technology or, or some other auto manufacturer. So we'll see. Yeah. 
And then hopefully in the meantime, every time you take a, you know, an Uber or something else, you'll be able to, to get a, a swappable vehicle. Precisely. Yeah, I'll be excited. Uh, the first time that happens, I'll be, I'll be excited. I'll be keeping a keen eye out for it. Perfect. All right. Uh, thanks so much, John. It's been a pleasure. The same here. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. And don't miss next week's episode by subscribing on Spotify, Google, Apple, or wherever else you listen to podcasts.